You're listening to Historically Speaking from Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and today I have with me former fraternity president and current ritual and history director, Denise Rugani, and our very special guest, Dr. Mary Osborne, director of the Stewart House Museum. Hello, my name is Kylie Smith and I was a Kappa at Simpson College Omicron Deuteron chapter and I currently serve as the Archivist and Museum Director for the Fraternity and the Foundation and I am thrilled to join you for this presentation of Leading by Serving, the History of Philanthropy in Kappa Kappa Gamma. I have two experts on the line with me who are actually doing the presenting. First, we have Denise Rugani, former Fraternity President and History and Ritual Content Director. Denise is a Kappa from Epsilon Omicron chapter at UC Davis. Hi, Denise. Hey, Kylie. We also have Dr. Mary Osborne with us. Dr. Oz is an alumna initiate from Alpha Deuteron chapter at Monmouth College, and she's the director of the Stewart House Museum, the birthplace of Kappa Kappa Gamma, and a Victorian house museum right there on Monmouth. Hi, Dr. Oz. Hi, Kylie. Thank you both for presenting tonight. So let's get started with Dr. Oz. What can you tell us about Kappa's notion of service throughout history? Thank you, Kylie. Over 50 years ago, the key identified love as the central component of Kappa's philanthropy. That theme has driven our endeavors from founding Kappa Kappa Gamma to providing resources to maintain our mental health. The fraternity's activities throughout its history have embodied the statement, we seek to serve by sharing what we are and what we have. Zeitgeist has shaped the type of philanthropy Kappa has pursued. From the progressive era onwards, the fraternity has fulfilled critical needs, whether through individual or collective efforts. A prime example is the settlement house movement. Although the concept of settlement houses originated elsewhere, Kappa's enthusiastically joined the movement by serving in these organizations. Volunteers' interactions with local residents informed their own experiences as college students and young alumni. One of Kappa's most notable contributors to this movement was Mary Kingsbury Simkovich, Boston. Simkovich came of age when major cities such as New York and Boston were dealing with waves of immigration, industrial development, and overcrowding. When disparate cultures began to occupy the same spaces, tensions mounted. Educated elites studied the situation and proposed reforms. Settlement houses helped build community and provided neighborhoods with resources to effect social change. They were equipped with libraries and multi-purpose rooms that could be used for meetings and classes. Residents, particularly women, came to settlement houses to learn about cooking, childcare, and literacy, among other subjects. Simkovich volunteered in several of these houses while she was a student. She learned to manage the house's daily operations, to deal with people's concerns, and to connect them to the appropriate resources. Eventually, she established her own non-sectarian settlement, Greenwich House. Her vision was to mold leaders from within the neighborhood, and in her own words, to give them a platform to voice their wrongs. The timeliness of these efforts met with scrutiny, however. It is important to examine our intentions as Florence Bascom did in the July 1894 issue of The Key. Volunteering for a stint in a settlement house was becoming popular among undergraduates. Bascom questioned students' motives. Were they actually altruistic, or did they emanate from a desire to be popular? Although Bascom's article contains traces of a white savior mentality, her point is worth noting. One of Kappa's earliest and ongoing organizational efforts to aid its members has been its student aid program. 
At the 1902 convention, Dr. Fanny Rice in Hitchcock, Pennsylvania, pledged $100 towards the establishment of a $1,200 fund for a scholarship at Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Four years later, Mabel Hayward, Illinois, called for Chicago alumni to take an active interest by supporting the National Fraternity. Hayward reasoned that existing for purely social reasons gave associations little leverage at convention. One way the alumni could support the fraternity was through contributing to the fund, which was formalized in October. In 1910, Kappa issued its first loan of $250 to a DePauw graduate. The fund increased to $10,000 by 1916. Scholarships for undergraduates were established in 1936, and loans were discontinued in 1974. Patriotism and humanitarianism fueled Kappa's most organized philanthropic project since its founding. When the Great War began in 1914, it wasn't long before Kappas found a way to serve. Some women risked their personal health and safety, both to support the war effort and to advance women's rights. Beta Psi in Toronto established a headquarters for war work at a farmhouse. A member of Beta Psi, Lily Denton Keyes, was the only woman graduate of the University of Toronto to die in service during the war, according to the fall 1977 issue of the Key. Some of the most visible examples of women's service were volunteer nurses and contract surgeons. Evelyn Thorpe, Cornell, and Jeanette Comstock, Adelphi, were, were recognized for their war service. Thorpe joined the New York Infirmary, infirmary that, that is a hard word to say, I'm so sorry. I've, I've struggled with it all week. Infirmary? Infirmary, there we go. Women's Hospital Unit as a chemist in 1918. The unit went to France to do relief work among civilians. Comstock volunteered with the YMCA to operate a canteen for U.S. soldiers. Motives for volunteering varied. Many women expressed a keen desire to do something tangible for their country, while others saw an opportunity to advance their chosen profession. Dr. Mary Crawford's service exemplifies this range of motives. Women physicians could only join the U.S. military as contract surgeons, meaning they earned no rank and no benefits. Other women doctors joined the Red Cross or a unit with the Women's Overseas Hospitals who treated refugee women and children. Dr. Crawford went overseas in October 1914 to work at the American Ambulance Hospital near Paris. She was one of the first women physicians to join the war effort and the only woman, woman physician to treat soldiers at the ambulance during the war. Returning to the U.S. in September 1915, she traveled around the country raising money for the American Women's Hospitals, which planned to send all women medical units overseas. Dr. Crawford was joined in this work by Dr. Emily Dunning Barringer, a fellow Kappa and Cornell alumna. The AWH needed strong women leaders to represent women medical workers, and it found them in Kappas such as Crawford and Barringer. As, jo as Josephine Reed Hopwood of the Philadelphia Alumni Association noted, it takes women of education, a far vision, and women in whose hearts throbs the red blood of the American forefathers to do the mean, trying duties that must be done in this emergency. Perhaps the most memorable legacy that Kappa left during World War I originates with Dorothy Canfield Fisher's letter to the key. When the war began, Fisher was living in France with her husband and children. She witnessed the war's effects on families, especially on children whose fathers were at the front. She heard about the living conditions in the village of Bellevue Moudon, the children whose parents were either at the front or working to support them desperately needed food and clothing. She sent a letter to the key, which was published in the October 1917 issue. A call from the firing line appeared on the front page. Fisher reminded readers, we are a group of women who know each other, 
You can act together, and here is a definite need which we can meet, a beginning of much-needed help which we can make. And indeed, it was the beginning of something much larger. Capus continued to support the children of Bellevue Moudon until 1921, as the country re rebuilt itself after the war. The appeal and the key evolved into the eponymous Dorothy Canfield Fisher project for, the, for French relief. Like Fisher's plea, individuals have often been at the root of Capus philanthropy. Rose McGill was an ordinary college student at the University of Toronto in 1919. She initiated as a member of Beta Psi in 1920 and was probably an active member for only a year when she contracted tuberculosis. Rose had no support from her family, but her Kappa sisters rallied around her. In 1922, Beta Psi sent a letter on behalf of Rose seeking funds for her care at a sanatorium. The Fraternity Finance Committee responded by creating a fund for her. Initially, treatment and board cost $28.90 per week, and by 1927, the year Rose died, expenditures had increased to $35 per week. Not only did Kappas ensure Rose's medical care, but they visited her until her death on August 13, 1927. Rose's care illustrates both the practical aspect of our philanthropic activities as well as the intangible results, fostering a sense of community. During World War II, Kappas again attended to meeting women's needs through the French Relief Fund. Beatrice Stanton Woodman, Boston, was the chair of the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Fund for French Relief. She received the Legion of Honor and the French Medal of Foreign Affairs in 1948 for her work with orphans. Kappa's support for those affected by the war continued well into the 1940s. Kappa camps, or summer camps near beaches and mountains, were established for as many as 125 refugee children. They were from the village of Bar Moudon, which the U.S. had bombed to disable Nazi-controlled Renault plants. Associations and chapters covered the children's expenses. In all, more than $25,600 was raised and $15,000 worth of packages sent. The Keys editor, Helen Bauer, Michigan, suggested setting up a relief fund for refugee children in journalist Nora Wallen's name when the author could not attend the 1940 convention. Capas all over North America also sent donations. The funds would be distributed by Nora to families of children who had been bombed out of their homes. Wallen also inspired a layout drive after an assignment in Scandinavia in 1945. Nora witnessed mothers wrapping their babies in newspapers. American and Canadian Kappas created and shipped 5,000 infant layettes to Norway as a result. In response to legislation which created auxiliary branches of the armed forces in 1942 and 1943, Kappa opened centers for service women. These centers bore similarities to the YMCA canteens from the Great War. Located in cities all over the country, 14 establishments offered such amenities as writing rooms, bathing facilities, and beauty parlors. Elizabeth Arden even donated powder rooms to each center. In all, about 1,250 Kappa volunteers served more than 300,000 service women and invested $14,000 in this endeavor. Post-war rebuilding undoubtedly informed the selection of Kappa's next official philanthropy, Rehabilitation Services, in 1952. A range of fellowships, grants, and scholarships allowed physicians to study the latest methods at the Institute of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at New York University's Bellevue Medical Center to help those affected by injury and or disease. For instance, in 1955, Dr. Chung Hee Oh, Korea's only woman doctor in the field of physical rehabilitation, studied with the director of the Institute, Dr. Howard Rusk, for 18 months. Although physical rehabilitation received a great deal of attention, the fraternity interpreted the meaning of this philanthropy in the fullest sense of restoration. 
It funded scholarships for undergraduates wishing to pursue careers in speech therapy, audiology, and special education. By 1970, Kappa had awarded so many rehabilitation scholarships and other grants that in October 1971, the National Rehabilitation Association presented Kappa with its annual organizational award. During the centennial campaign, Kappas had raised $35,000 for the Institute of Rehabilitation Medicine and $6,000 for the World Rehabilitation Fund. I love hearing about all of these amazing Kappas who really helped solidify Kappa's efforts to serve others. You forgot one thing, though. Oh, what's that? <laughs> B. Woodman also owned the famous poison ring that she later donated to the fraternity, and it's still in our archives. Uh, yes, it wouldn't be a presentation with Kylie if we didn't talk about the poison ring. <laughs> well, someone has to keep the memory of that incredible ring alive. And you certainly do. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Oz, for that fascinating look at the fraternity's early philanthropic efforts. Denise, since you were actually a part of the leadership team that helped make some of the more current decisions about the fraternity's philanthropy, can you pick it up around the 1980s? Absolutely. We can't forget that while service to those in the larger world has always been important, Kappa Kappa Gamma was still doing so much to support our own members in need through scholarships, loans, grants, and the preservation of our history through the Heritage Museum. We also began to recognize the need for an ever-increasing menu of educational training and leadership development. By 1989, it was clear that we needed to bring all of these different charitable efforts under one umbrella, thus the formation of the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Were you on council when that was started? <laughs> Very funny. No, I was not. But our dear friend Kay Larson was. So with that, the, the foundation was established in 1989. We now have scholarships, emergency assistance through the Rose McGill Fund, historical preservation, and education and training under one umbrella. And while rehabilitation was an incredible cause to support, even that was changing rapidly. Medical innovations grew and the field of rehabilitation split off into many different areas. It became difficult to have a central focus. So in came our new partnership with Reading is Fundamental, and the Philanthropy 123 program. The idea was that as Kappas, we would one, tend to home fires and support the Kappa Foundation, two, support local philanthropies that were important to the chapter because some still had long-lasting relationships with rehabilitation hospitals, and three, we would support the National Literacy Organization Reading is Fundamental through service hours and book donations. Through this partnership with RIF, we helped highlight the importance of providing opportunities for children and their families to experience the life-changing impact of reading. As RIF points out, reading is the fundamental building block to all of life's central skills. You know, with this historical emphasis on education or, or re-education, it's easy to see the connection to our former partnership with reading as fundamental. Literacy gives children a foundation to achieve wellness. Now Kappa has come full circle by supporting mental health with a partnership with Talkspace. After all, one of the reasons our founders started Kappa was to be a supportive network for undergraduates who daily dealt with the mental and emotional stress of being women college students. The, the historical specificities have changed, 
The founders attended college when there were roughly only 11,000 women across the country enrolled in institutions of higher learning. However, they still had to juggle their studies, relationships, and family responsibilities, just as students do now. Kappa Kappa Gamma stays true to our roots in helping women achieve wellness, whether that is physical, mental, or emotional. Well, you both covered a lot of ground, almost 150 years worth of philanthropy in just a few minutes. So thank you. You've been listening to Historically Speaking, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Many thanks to our presenters, Denise Rugani, former fraternity president and current ritual and history director from the Epsilon Omicron chapter at UC Davis, and the director of the Stewart House Museum, Dr. Mary Osborne from the Alpha Deuteron chapter at Monmouth College. Initial research was done by Mary Osborne and production is done by me, Kylie Towers-Smith from the Omicron Deuteron chapter at Simpson College and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.